Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of the Personal Finance Show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 109. It's titled, Money is a Time Machine. One of my favorite movies is Napoleon Dynamite. And, and I admit, some people, they just don't get it. They think the show is stupid. But if you live in Idaho, you realize it's there, there are definitely some elements of truth in that film. Well, during the movie, Uncle Rico believes the trajectory of his life would have been totally different if his high school football coach had put him in the big game during the fourth quarter. We would have been state champions, no doubt, no doubt in my mind, says Rico. A professional football career, millions of dollars in compensation, a mansion with a hot tub for him and his soulmate are now unattainable because of that fateful decision by Rico's coach. Rico asks his nephew, Kip, I reckon you know a lot about cyberspace. You ever come across anything like time travel? Easy, says Kip. I've already looked into it for myself. Right on, says Rico. Right on. A tortured look on his face as he realizes he won't be able to change the past. William Gutzman, in his book that just came out, Money Changes Everything, How Finance Made Civilization Possible, reveals that time travel does indeed exist. He writes, in essence, financial technology is a time machine we have built ourselves. It can't move people through time, but it can move our money. As a result, it alters the economic position of our current and future selves. Economic value moves forward and backwards in time. Gutzman gives the example of how a mortgage, a home mortgage, allows a borrower to shift money into the present so they can buy a house today, while for the lender it moves money in terms of interest and principal payments into the future. Likewise, a person contemplating retirement can purchase future living money today by entering into a single premium immediate annuity contract with an insurance company that guarantees income for life. I talked about SPIAs, or these these annuity contracts, in episode 32, Die Broke, and in episode 62, How Much Can You Spend in Retirement? In earlier episodes, I've said debt accelerates future spending into the present, while saving shifts current consumption into the future. Now, I never thought of it as a time machine, but essentially, that's what it is. So debt accelerates future spending into the present, and when we save, we're shifting current consumption into the future. The challenge arises in that it is human nature to make choices that benefit the present self to the detriment of our future self. University of Chicago economist Richard Thaler conducted a fascinating experiment on how humans make decisions between the present 
and future selves. He presented the following choices to the study's participants. They could choose either one apple today, so receive one apple today, two apples tomorrow, one apple in one year, or two apples in one year plus one day. Most participants chose one apple today over two apples tomorrow, as it's human nature to value the bird in hand over two in the bush. But very few participants chose one apple in a year when they could get two apples in one year plus a day. When the temporal distance is extended, we find it easier to wait for a more valuable item. The incremental pain of delayed gratification is much much less between two choices in the distant future. What is more difficult is the choice between getting something today versus tomorrow, as our emotions and feelings dominate the decision-making rather than our logical selves. We can almost taste that apple or that piece of chocolate cake. Choices that benefit our present self often win out over those that benefit our future self because we cannot feel our future feelings, as Mark Spinegel points out in his book, The Tao of Capital. He writes, We weight the future and past subjectively and disproportionately, such that, like the warnings on the rearview mirror, they seem fuzzier and further away in proximity to the present. The irony is, even when we think we are making a decision based on how we think we will feel in the future, those decisions are biased by how we feel today. In his book, Stumbling on Happiness, Dan Gilbert writes, We assume what we will feel as we imagine the future is what we'll feel when we get there. But in fact, what we feel as we imagine the future is often a response to what is happening in the present. As we get older, our ability to make choices that strikes a more equitable balance between our present and future selves improves. Spitznagel writes, It's the young adult in the deep end of the temporal pool who lives like there is no tomorrow, while the older folk who have far fewer actuarial years ahead are better able to make intertemporal choices that prepare for a future, perhaps that may very well exceed their own lifespan, thus thinking and acting for the benefit of intergenerational fitness and advantage. Now, here are two ways we can make better choices as we balance the present with the future. First, we can decide now, before getting that next raise or bonus, that the new money will go to savings rather than be spent. And ideally, we'll automate, it, automate the transfer of the funds into savings so we never see the money in our checking account. It's so easy to increase our consumption and elevate our lifestyle as our income rises. I've seen this in my, my own life. I, re, I remember when we moved from a much smaller house in Ohio to a, a, a bigger house that had a, a pool and, and just ha, had more square footage. And I remember one of my friends says, well, this must be your partner house. You now that you're a partner at your firm. And, and I remember feeling a little uneasy about that, but we had a, we gradually adapted our lifestyle to as our income rose. One way to avoid that is to to make the decision today 
that we will keep our existing consumption patterns in place before the money shows up, before the new money shows up, before we're allowed to mostly taste of the new bounty. And that will make it easier to save for the future. A second thing that we can do to balance the future with the present and to make better decisions is we need to recognize we can't feel our future feelings. And even if we can imagine how we might feel in the future, that exercise is biased by our present feelings. When we're feeling crummy and we're, we anticipate an event, let's say we're going to go have dinner with some friends t- tomorrow night, we're having a rotten day, it's very, very difficult to anticipate thinking that the event tomorrow is going to be wonderful because we, we just, and we do this subconsciously, it, it, how we feel today impacts our expectations for how we will feel in the future. Now, there's a simple way to determine how we might feel in the future about a decision we are contemplating today. And Dan Gilbert talks about this in his book, Stumbling on Happiness. He says, we can ask someone who is having the experience or made the decision we are considering and ask them how they feel. Since they are currently feeling what we might feel, they can, quote, be surrogates for our future selves, says Dan Gilbert. We can ask people how they like living where we are considering moving or working in a profession we are contemplating. How do they feel now that they are retired or switched careers? Because people can share, we have a very accurate gauge for how we feel now, for the things that we're experiencing. So if we ask somebody how they're feeling and they're living the life we're contemplating, then we can get a pretty accurate representation of how we might feel in a similar circumstances. I saw this with my son. He was considering studying audio engineering, music audio engineering, and was was thinking about and had applied to a number of schools, but then got the idea, why not see if he could just get an internship first? And so he started calling around to different studios and started having conversations with professionals in the audio engineering field and was able to, to ask how they like it, what their experience were. And from that, he could get a better sense of whether he might like that. He was ultimately able to work that into an internship. And so he, now he's learning the field in the moment and, and figuring out well, whether it's a good fit or not. Now, when we do that, when we ask people what they're experiencing, things that we're contemplating. In a sense, we are time traveling. We're we're taking, essentially, we're getting an accurate sense of what life might be like in the future from someone who is actually living it today. Now, I mentioned the Tao of Capital by Mark Spitznagel, and I mentioned this a a number of episodes ago. It's a challenging book. I I admit, it's not an easy read, and I go back to it on an occasion because... It makes me think. One of the things he said in there is capital has an intertemporal dimension. In other words, it capital shifts between the present and the future. Capital's positioning and advantage at different points in the future is central. Time is its milieu, its background. Time defines it, shapes it, and hinders it. As we think about capital in a new way, we must also think about time in a new way. As we engage in this process, our path, which he calls the Tao of Capital. 
And the path that he recommends is notable in that, he says, it's exceedingly and purposefully circuitous. The key word throughout this book is roundabout, the going right in order to go left. He goes on, rather than pursue pursue the direct route of immediate gain, we will seek the difficult and roundabout route of immediate loss, an intermediate step which begets an advantage for greater potential gain. I saw an example of that in the book, The Big Short, or if you've watched the movie, The Big Short. We, we watched it the other day. I admit I watched it on VidAngels, which <laughs> turns out when you, when you screen out uh, some of the swear words, you lose a lot of the dialogue. But we watched it because I was watching with LaPrille. But what you saw there, you had Michael Burry and Paul Baum. They both managed hedge funds. They bought credit default swaps. And one of the underlying tensions in in the movie is that the Wall Street banks that sold them the credit default swaps that on particular mortgage bonds would call up with margin calls. They were losing money and they had to put up more money. And, and, and I think it was, was it Michael Berry would, would write how much money or the, the percentage loss of his fund and the investors were getting upset. They were taking the circuitous route. It was a roundabout approach. They were willing to lose money today, a little bit of money, in order to get the huge gain in the future. And I think it showed that, that Burry's fund, at the end of the day, gained 480%. It is really difficult to lose money in the short term for a potential long-term payoff. You, you saw that with, with Barry's clients. And with the margin calls, it, it, it's just not something we do very well. Spitznagel says, because of its difficulty, it will remain the circuitous road least traveled, so contrary to our wiring, to our perception of time, and virtually impossible on Wall Street. The Chinese classic, in the Chinese classic, the Zhuangzi, I've mentioned this earlier, this quote, Jeju is a madman. He loves to sing and, and sing philosophy. He sings outside Confucius's front gate. And here's what he's singing. Drawing a straight line upon this earth and then try to walk along it. Danger, peril, the brambles and thorns which so bewilder the sunlight, they don't impede my steps. My zigzag stride amid them keeps my feet unharmed. The circuitous route, being willing to give up something today for a payoff later. We do this in terms of our health. If we choose to exercise, and I hate to exercise, but by choosing to do it and suffer through it, hopefully the long-term payoff will be a, a healthy, long life. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, you know they shut down several months ago. Well, let me tell you about the budgeting solution, the financial tracking solution I've been using for the past number of months. It's Monarch Money. Monarch Money is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets like I've done. You can set goals, collaborate with your partner. And now you can get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash David. 
What I like about Monarch is the ability to customize what I want to see. I have custom budget categories, and then I can go on to the dashboard and see where I'm above trend on some of my spending. I especially like that Monarch will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying Monarch myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash David for your extended 30-day free trial. We have a brand new sponsor to our show. It's Yahoo Finance. Yahoo's been around for decades. My first email outside of work was a Yahoo email address. But the financial side, I've used on occasion primarily to get data for dividend histories for particular funds or ETFs. But I was pleasantly surprised to get back on Yahoo Finance to see how it's evolved over the years. Now it's really a financial dashboard where you can get an understanding of what's going on with the markets. There are relevant articles from Bloomberg, Reuters, the Associated Press, and the Yahoo Finance team. You can look at the economic events calendar and see which data series are being released that day and what the consensus is. You can see the pulse of the markets at any time by going to Yahoo Finance. In addition, you could see all of your investments in retirement accounts in one place. With Yahoo Finance, you get a consolidated view of multiple accounts. Yahoo Finance serves as a financial hub for your retirement accounts, but also comprehensive financial news and analysis. You need to check out Yahoo Finance, particularly if you haven't been there in a while. Check it out at yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. So Spitznango asks, well, how do we resolve this, parado- this paradox, this need to take the, this, this detour? How is it that the detour can be somehow more effective than the direct route, that going right could be somehow the most effective way to go left. The answer demands a deep reconsideration of time and how we perceive it. We must change dimensions from the immediate to the intermediate, from the atemporal to the intertemporal. It requires resolute, forward-looking orientation away from what is happening now, what can be seen to what is to come what cannot be seen. I will call this new perspective depth of field, our ability to sharply perceive a long span of forward moments. Long term is telescopic, short term is myopic. Myopic. Depth of field retains focus between the two. So let's not think of long term and short term. Let's think of time entirely different as intertemporal, comprised of a series of coordinated now moments, each providing for the next, one after the other, like a great piece of music or beads on a string. Now, I read that and I read it again, and it's complicated. And, and But I, I sometimes like to read stuff above my head because it, it brings ideas. But essentially, he's saying we need to maintain balance between the now and the long term and not look at them as disconnected things. And sometimes we pay a price now for a long-term gain. Sometimes we, we, we do have to be patient and, and take a long-term view, but we always have to keep all the different temporal aspects in mind. We need to understand how money time travels, 
how economic values moves forward and backward in time. And one reason we have to do that is we can understand what is driving markets and and helps us to avoid getting caught up in, in bubbles. Here is a fascinating quote that I found in Gutsman's book. It was by John Maynard Keynes, the renowned British economist. It was in the general theory, American way. Here it is. Americans are apt to be unduly interested in discovering what average opinion believes average opinion to be. And this national weakness finds its nemesis in the stock market. It is rare, one is told, for an American to invest, as many Englishmen do, still do, for income. And he will not readily purchase an investment except for capital appreciation. He is, in the above sense, a speculator's. Speculators may do harm, do no harm as bubbles on a steady stream of enterprise, but the position is serious when enterprise becomes the bubble on a whirlpool of speculation. When the capital development of a country becomes the byproduct of the activities of the casino, the job is likely to be ill done. What's he talking about? He's talking about the tail wagging the dog. When the the point of Wall Street traditionally was to direct investment to Main Street, to businesses, to channel capital for, for productive enterprises. But when demand for securities starts to impact Main Street, then, then that's a problem. That's when it becomes a casino. And, and the great financial crisis I talked about in episode 97 Discussed that, as did the book and the movie The Big Short. The demand for collateralized collateralized debt obligations and other mortgage-backed securities contributed to the housing bubble. The demand for these high-yielding securities that were packaged and given AAA ratings, investors around the world wanting these higher-yielding, supposedly safe securities, led to people owning two or three houses without having to provide any type of income verification. Now, it's all nested together, interrelated, but it was definitely the demand for the securities that drove the market. William Gutzman, in, in his book, Money Changes Everything, gave another example, the, one of the first bubbles created out of mortgage-backed securities. It wasn't just in 2005, 2006. It happened in the 1920s through something called skyscraper bonds. Here's how they would work. A developer would form a corporation to build a skyscraper. And a mortgage company would underwrite the debt and then issue bonds to small investors through their retail sales force in, in denominations as small as $100. So the, the, little, the little people could buy into the building of these huge skyscrapers. The interest and principal that, that was received to pay for the, the money. So the money, let's go back to the time travel example. The, the, the bonds were sold, and so the individual investors were taking money and putting it out into the future. The developer was getting future money today so they could build a building. And then as they signed long-term leases, the lease money would go back to the mortgage company and out to the individual investors that own the skyscraper bonds. They seem safe. 
And, and on their surface, they, they are safe because if there's a default, then the asset could be sold. You had the security of the building. The investor could go and see the 200-foot-plus tall building in New York City or Detroit or Chicago and feel that this was a safe investment. Except the demand for the securities became so great that that started to drive the property behavior. Over 1,000 of these skyscraper bonds were issued with a face value of more than $4 billion. There were more buildings, 200 feet and higher, built in New York City between 1922 and 1931 than any time in history. Lee Thomas Smith, who was president of the National Association of Building Owners and Managers, wrote in 1926, quote, Buildings are being put up entirely through the endeavor of bond houses to sell bonds, whether the buildings are needed or not. Overproduction is caused by speculators who borrow at full cost of construction, regardless of return. They then sell the building at a profit and proceeds to and proceed to erect another somewhere else. Essentially, it became a Ponzi scheme. In August 1926, the Miller Company, which is one of the big underwriters of these bonds, they issued bonds for a company called 571 Park Avenue Corporation. This was going to be a building in New York City. But it, so it sold the bonds but failed to give the money to the developer and instead declared bankruptcy. And it turns out they were taking money that they were raising to build a building and using it to pay earlier investors who had bought bonds from other buildings where they hadn't been able to fully lease them out. Maybe the building got built. And so they, they were passing it on. Another example was Strauss & Company that filed for bankruptcy in the early 1930s. There is a, a building that exists today. It's the Majestic Apartments. It's at 115 Central Park West. It's an Art Deco masterpiece. Well, Strauss & Company underwrote $9.4 million in skyscraper bonds. They were going to pay 6%. But $2 million of those bonds went unsold. So what did they do? They repackaged them. You could think of it as a synthetic CDO where they were repackaging, packaging bonds and using them over. Well, they repackaged these, these bonds into short-term notes and then sold them. And, and, the, and the investors were unaware that they were tied to an un, unbuilt building. One of the things that we took away from the episode 97 on the great financial crisis, the importance is don't, don't fund the, a mismatch between assets and liabilities in terms of time. These were short-term notes, but they the, the, the proceeds to, to pay the interest on these short-term notes were tied to a long-term asset, a building which had yet to be built. Is it any wonder that the Majestic defaulted, as did these, these short-term notes? There was a cover story a few weeks ago by Rana Faruhar, in Time Magazine, it was called American Capitalism Great Crisis. And if you remember my insider's guide, my free insider's guide, I will email the show notes to you, the links to this article, as well as to the books I've mentioned. If you're not a member and if you would like to get those links to sent to you so you never have to go to my website and you get a summary article of each week's episode, you can sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.net on the homepage. Or if you're a U.S.-based listener, you can text the word INSIDER to the number 44222. In this article, Faruhar, I think I'm saying that right, says, 
from the creation of a unified national bond and banking system in the U.S. in the late 1790s to the early 1970s, finance took individual and corporate savings and funneled them into productive enterprises, creating new jobs, new wealth, and ultimately economic growth. That's what Keynes was talking about and what we talked about. That's the role of Wall Street. Of course, there were plenty of blips along the way, most memorably the speculation leading up to the Great Depression, including the skyscraper bonds, which was later curbed by regulation. But for the most part, finance, which today includes everything from banks and hedge funds to mutual funds, insurance firms, trading houses, and such, essentially served business. It was a vital organ, but not, for the most part, the central one. Over the past few decades, finance has turned away from this traditional role. Academic research shows that only a fraction of all the money washing around the financial markets these days actually makes it to Main Street businesses. Quote, the the intermediation of household savings for productive investment in the business sector, the textbook description of the financial sector, constitutes only a minor share of the business of banking today, according to academics Oscar Jorda, Alan Taylor, and Moritz Schulerich who study the issue in detail. By their estimates and others, around 15% of capital coming from financial institutions today is used to fund business investments, whereas it would have been the majority of what banks did earlier in the 20th century. They say that that most of it is going to, is lending against existing assets, housing, and, and bonds. The financial sector now represents 7% of the U.S. economy from about 4% in 1980. And despite currently taking around 25% of all corporate profits, it creates a mere 4% of all jobs. It's the financialization uh, of the world. And, And that's why we have to monitor investment conditions because financialization can lead to bubbles, it can lead to the tail wagging the dog, and it can distort the future from the present. That's why we have to monitor these things. We have to have what Spitznagel calls, what was that? He called it a depth of field. We have to be able to monitor the long-term and the short-term and make sure we make the connections. Sometimes it means... Buying insurance and, and, and locking in a loss today for a potential benefit in a fu- the future. But the overriding message of today's episode is money is indeed a time machine. We have to be prudent users of debt when we accelerate future spending into the present. And we have to create anchors and decisions that allow us to including keeping our, our consumption in line as our income grows so that we don't overemphasize the present, our present self, to the detriment of our future self, that we actually save and save more. My platform for keeping the proper depth of field, the perspective between the long term and the short term, is the money for the rest of us hub. There is where I develop long-term capital market assumptions for stocks, bonds, REITs, and other asset classes. But then I look at short-term conditions. What are valuations? What are economic trends? And what are market internals? A level of fear and greed. A bubble watch, let's say. 
That's what I do. I do a monthly report in terms of those investment conditions. And I'm looking for regime changes, major changes that suggest the long-term strategy should be adjusted in terms of taking either less risk or potentially more risk. You can get help with your investing on the Money for the Rest of Us Hub. That includes model portfolios. It includes a a weekly Q&A premium plus episode called Money for the Rest of Us Plus. It includes asset allocation assumptions, a member forum, and other audio and video lessons. And you can get more information for that at moneyfortherestofushub.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education only. I've not considered your specific risk profile. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing in the economy. Have a great week.